Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. What I'd like to do this morning is give a brief presentation on understanding the Bible. Rather ambitious project. (laughs) (laughs) This is just going to be an introduction to the subject, but I hope it will help us all to come to some criteria that will help us in as we pick up the Bible and read it. I thought that this verse, uh, first three verses here in Hebrews is maybe a good place to start, so let's just read this. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, that is Christ, is the radiance of his glory, the glory of the Father, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, I chose that verse to begin with because there's really three three big areas that I want us to think about this morning in relationship to understanding the Word of God. These are just three helps as we take up the Bible and read it. And they all come out in this first, these first three verses here. First of all, we need to understand that this book that we're reading when we read the Bible is Jewish. It was predominantly written by Jewish people for Jewish people. The Messiah that it talks about was a Jewish Messiah. If you have the least trace of anti-Semitism in you, you're going to have to get rid of it. Christianity is Jewish. Think about that a little bit. That's the first thing. And I'll expand on that. The second thing is, this revelation that we have in the Bible is a progressive revelation. It builds upon itself. God gave his truth as he prepared people to receive it. So you start out with shadows, you come to the reality as the Bible progresses more and more. And then lastly, that this book is Christ-centered. The key to understanding the Bible is Christ. Now all of those things are right here in this, these first verses. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers. Well, who's the fathers? Wasn't my father. Is the the fathers of the Jewish nation, the patriarchs, in the prophets, in many portions, in many ways. God spoke many different ways, uh, dreams, voices, written prophets, many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. So there's a progression, you see, from, from the early time to the later time. In these last days, in other words, God has expanded on what he began to teach in these last days. And the big expansion came with 
Christ, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also made the world. So, these are the points that we're going to emphasize today. As far as understanding the scriptures, understanding the Bible, there's three things really important to remember. This is a Jewish book. That doesn't mean it's not for all of us, but it was written by Jews about a Jewish Messiah. It's a progressive book. That is, it advances in terms of its revelation. And it's Christ-centered. So if you get that, if you go away with that, that's the main thing. Now we're going to expand on that. First of all, let me just say this. We're talking about understanding the Bible. Where did we get this name Bible? That might be a good place to start. Did you know that the word Bible, the name Bible, is not in the Bible? (laughs) Take a concordance and look for the word Bible. You're not going to find it because it's not in there. Now, it's on the front of my Bible, but it's not in the written part of the Scriptures. What we call the Bible was not called the Bible until about the 2nd century A.D., 200 years after Christ, when Christians began using this word to describe their authoritative writings. What you find in the Bible, in terms of what the writings are called, are the scriptures. The scriptures, that's what you'll find. So, when the Christians were putting together their authoritative scriptures, they called it a Bible. The word Bible, what's the word Bible mean? It means book. So they were saying, this is the book. The book for us. The word itself is actually related to the papyrus plant, which is what the first paper was made from. Now, when we think of paper today, the paper we have is made from wood. But there was a certain kind of a plant that grew in the Mideast, especially around Egypt initially, that the Egyptians learned how to make what we would call paper from. That's where we get our word paper from, papyrus. Now what I wanted to do, just mainly for the children, but other people might be interested too, I wanted to pass around a piece of papyrus. So as I'm talking, you can just kind of keep this moving around. Let the children look at this. This is a piece of papyrus from Egypt. Uh, My brother was over there a number of years ago and he brought this back to me. And uh, you can see, if you look close, there's, there's, well, it'd be like little leaves of, of the papyrus plant that run this way and this way and this way and this way. And that what they did, they, they put these stems of the papyrus plant on top of one another and press them together, and that's the way they made paper. So I just started over here with now, it's got kind of a goofy picture on the one side. That's not the side I want you to look at. The other side. So, we're talking about how we got this word Bible to begin with. The Bible means book. And, as I said, it's related to the papyrus plant, which was the first paper. We get the word paper from the word papyrus, which in the Greek language was Biblos. Okay, so from that comes Bible. 
The first thing I would like to say concerning understanding the Bible is that the Bible is meant to be understood. Okay? God's given us a revelation. What's the idea for doing that? So we know what he wants us to know. Things about him and things about us. There's much in the scripture that is easy to understand. Even a child can comprehend these things well enough to be able to be saved at an early age. It's, it's something God has given us to understand. On the other hand, the Bible has depths of meaning and portions that are hard to fathom. Some of the brightest minds have spent their lifetimes in trying to dig into the profound teachings of this book, the Bible. For almost 2,000 years, people have delved into its contents and given the world thousands of volumes, thousands of volumes devoted to the exposition, exposition and understanding of this book, and they still have not exhausted its resources. Why is that? Because in this book are hidden the infinite and inexhaustible treasures of wisdom and knowledge of God. You're dealing with God here. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to plumb the depths of this this book. Isn't it amazing? A child can understand this, and yet the the brightest minds that, that have... Uh, the world has ever known and tried to dig in and understand and still realize there's so much more, so much more. The Bible does leave questions unanswered. That's true. But it does answer the big questions. It gives answers to the really important questions that all people think about as they contemplate their existence. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What happens when I die? What's God like? And how can I be right with him? A person that comes to the Bible humbly and honestly and prayerfully and studies, digs in to his teachings, will find answers to those questions and many more things. They'll find out what they need to know in order to live their lives in a right relationship with God and other people. So, here we have this book, the book, the Bible. On the surface, if you just pick it up, look at the table of contents, it might appear to be a collection of almost random stories about God and people. But there's a unity that binds all these books of the Bible together into a much bigger story. There's actually 66 books in the Bible, and those books were written over some 1,500 years by nearly 40 different authors in a number of different languages, and yet there's a unity here. Those 66 books are actually a Bible, a book, the book. And that unity is found in Christ. The one great problem that the Bible talks about is sin. The one great solution is Christ. 
The overall grand theme is God's plan for his creation. And all that's centered in Christ. The Old Testament presents the anticipation of Christ, the Messiah, coming. That's what Christ means, by the way. When we say Christ, that's the Greek for the Hebrew word Messiah. We're saying Jesus, Messiah, Jesus Christ. So I say the overall grand theme is God's plan for creation. The Old Testament is an anticipation for this Redeemer, this Messiah, this Christ. The New Testament Gospels present the realization of this one that the Old Testament talks about, the coming of Christ. That's what we find in the New Testament. The book of Acts gives us the initial proclamation of his coming. The the letters of Paul and Peter and others, New Testament letters, is an explanation of his coming. The book of Revelation presents the consummation of God's plan at his second coming, and then the recreation of all things. Or to put it another way, you might say it like this. The Bible is about what the sovereign God did in the beginning by making a good creation, what we did, us creatures made in his image, to mess up that creation, what he did through Christ to straighten out the creation, and what he's going to do yet when Christ comes again to remake that creation as he intended it to be in the first place. That's the flow of the Bible. Creation ruined, redeemed, remade. There's, that's it. Creation ruined by man's sin, redeemed by Christ, and remade. If the Bible, with its 66 books, is actually a unity, it has this flow to it, why is it divided into two testaments? Why do we have this Old Testament and New Testament? Well, that comes into this thing of progressive revelation. It's important to remember that the Bible is a progressive revelation written over hundreds of years from the time of Moses. Moses is the one that gave us the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, written over, began to be written by Moses and then was added on to by many different writers, 40 different writers, till you get clear to the end of the Bible and the Apostle John writing the book of Revelation. God did not reveal himself or his plan of salvation all at once. As we read the Bible, you realize that there's obviously a progression over centuries from the very basic to the more detailed, from the types and shadows to reality, from partial to complete. God gave his truth as he prepared his people to receive it. He graciously unfolded both his redemption and his revelation in ways corresponding to man's capacity to receive what he was saying. What is at first only obscurely intimated is gradually unfolded as the Bible progresses. And then we see the fullness of God's revelation in Christ. As the writer said here, he is the radiance of his glory 
in the exact representation of his nature. If you want to know what God is like, you can look in that, the New Testament and see God in the flesh walking amongst us. The most obvious example of the fact that there's a progressive revelation is just that the Bible is actually put in, given to us in these two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you take the Bible and read something in the Old Testament that was written specifically for the Jewish people and try to directly apply it to your life now, you're going to have some problems. You're not reading the Bible rightly. We need to remember that we as Christians, call the, what we call the Old Testament is actually the Hebrew Scriptures. Okay? Our Old Testament is is the Hebrew Scriptures. That would be their Bible, the Jewish Bible. What we call the New Testaments are the writings that came about because of the coming of the Messiah that were for that that were told about, prophesied in the Old Testament. So you have the Messiah prophesied and then uh, revealed. Old Testament, New Testament. Eventually, we're going to get around to this sheet that I handed out. The Old Testament describes the history of the people that God chose to be the ones through whom the Messiah would come. Therefore, it contains the history of God's people, the Jews, and also includes prophecies concerning the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. There are at least 50 predictions in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah or Savior that the New Testament writers speak specifically of as being fulfilled in Christ. They go back to the Old Testament and say, that verse is what Jesus was doing. That verse is about Jesus. This was speaking about Jesus. That's done at least 50 times in the New Testament. Besides that, there are over 220 quotes in the Old Testament, uh, quotes from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So you have all kinds of Old Testament verses quoted in the New Testament. And there's actually hundreds more if you count allusions and references. The New Testament is only completely understood when it is seen as a fulfillment of the events, characters, laws, sacrifices, covenants, and promises of the Old Testament. In other words, you could say it this way. The Old Testament was incomplete, preparatory, and limited. The New Testament is complete, final, and universal. The old was to the Jews, the new is for all people. Now that doesn't mean all people shouldn't read the old, but it was specifically written to the Jews. Most importantly, the Old Testament promised a New Testament. The Old Testament promised a New Testament. The Old Testament lays the foundation for the teachings and events found in the New Testament. As one person put it, they put it this way. The old, and you have to think about this, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Let me say that again. The new, that is the New Testament, is in the old concealed. It's The things that are here in the New Testament are there in the Old Testament. They're just there in types and shadow, shadows. It's concealed. The new is in the old concealed. But, on the other hand, the old 
is in the new revealed. If you want to understand this Old Testament, you have to go to the New Testament. That's where you really understand what the Old Testament is, is about because it's revealed in the New Testament to us. The great themes of the New Testament are the same as those of the Hebrew Scriptures. God's holiness, his righteousness and mercy, God, man's alienation and estrangement from God through disobedience, God's great love, forgiveness, and plan of reconciliation. And there's also the great theme of the ultimate triumph of God's kingdom and his judgments and rewards. In the Old Covenant, the emphasis was upon promise. In the New Covenant, the emphasis is upon fulfillment. So the one stresses preparation, the other the consummation. One book put it this way, The Old Testament saw paradise lost in Adam. The New Testament shows how paradise is regained for mankind through the second Adam, Christ, and how it will one day be restored. The Old Testament declares that man was separated from God through sin. The New Testament declares that man can now be restored to his relationship with God because of the sacrifice of Christ, the Messiah. So what, I, what I'm trying to do here is just give the big picture, what this book is all about. You might say, I'm trying to give a bird's eye view of the Bible. You know, if a bird's sitting down in a tree in the forest, he doesn't have a very good idea what the forest is all about, what the forest looks like. He can see that just the trees, he can't see the forest for the trees, just those trees around him. But if you get up flying around up high, then you can see the whole forest and get an idea of what the forest looks like. Well, that's what we want to do. We want to get a bird's eye view of the Bible here. And one important aspect of this big picture is to have an overview of God's dealing with the Jews because that's what a great deal of this book is about. It's a revelation primarily given to the Jewish people and for them to bless the world through that revelation. Uh, again, just think about this. This book was written almost totally by Jewish people. That's not just true of the Old Testament. It's true of the New Testament, too. And most of it deals with the history of the Jewish people. If we're going to understand the book, we should have some understanding of the Jewish people. <clears throat> Who were these people we call the Jews? I want to give you a brief explanation here, and that's where we're going to start getting into this timeline. Let me just say, before we do that, that around 2000 B.C., in a world that was almost completely given over to the worship of idols and false gods, God called a man named Abram. That was the beginning of the Jewish nation, the Hebrew people. And that nation was founded upon the worship of the one true God and that through this nation, God would bless all nations. Why don't we turn to this in Genesis chapter 12. Here's a man, Abram, living amongst the heathen people, worshiping all kinds of false gods. And God just comes to him and says, I want you to leave this place. 
and go where I'm going to take you, send you. Put your faith in me and just go where I tell you to go. And if you do that, you'll be blessed and the whole world will be blessed because of it also. Let me just read it to you here. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those that bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, so God says, I'm going to do something here. I'm going to start a a nation through you, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. What we learn in the rest of the Old Testament is the way that the Hebrew nation would bless the world. It would be through them that a Messiah would come. This becomes progressively clear as as the Old Testament unfolds. The Hebrew nation was founded so that through them the world would be blessed by their Messiah. As the Old Testament progresses, we see the way the Hebrew nation would bless the world would be through the family of David. This, as you read on, you see, you learn about this King David. The way the family of David would bless the world would be that through that family would come one great king, the Messiah. And he, this king, would establish a universal kingdom that would last forever. That's what we see presented progressively in the Old Testament. In other words, God was going to reverse the results of the fall of mankind into sin through bringing a Messiah into the world by way of the Jewish nation. That's the Old Testament. As you read the Old Testament... You've got to keep that big picture in mind. That's what God's doing. Even though it seems like it's just about these Jewish people. Well, there was a reason God called out Abraham and established this nation. And that reason was to bring the Messiah into the world so that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation could be saved. Let's just look at this diagram here a little bit. And... Uh, Maybe that'll help us get a little feel for what God was doing. Up at the top, I have some approximate dates. Now, these are just very rough dates, but it's good to kind of have those in mind when you read the Old Testament. They're simple, okay? It's not that hard. We're talking about Abraham, the the father of the Jewish people, 2000 B.C. So here we are, are, 2,000 years after the time of Christ. Well, that many years before the time of Christ, God spoke to a man named Abram and called him out and established a nation, a Jewish nation. So you got 4,000 years ago, 2000 B.C., Abraham. You should, should remember that. Abraham, 2000. Okay. Then you go to Moses, the man, you know, in the time of the Exodus. And... Uh, the uh, bringing the people out from under Pharaoh's slavery to Pharaoh, 1500 B.C. Now, there's a little little question. Some scholars would say it might be more in the 
uh, 13th century B.C., not the 15th, but it seems the Bible, as you just take the Bible and try to fit the, the time together, the best uh, date is 15, uh, 1500 B.C., so that's Moses. David, that's pretty solid, 1000 B.C. Now, now that's easy, isn't it? 1000, 1000 B.C., David. So you got Abraham, Moses, David, 1000 B.C. Then I put Daniel at 500 B.C., and there'd be a bunch of other prophets right around that time, too. And then Christ at uh, 1 A.D., I guess you right there, you know, that uh, we separate our whole uh, scheme of time into B.C. and A.D. related to the birth of Christ. So anyway, that's just, just, just some approximate dates that I think it's kind of helpful to keep in mind. Now, down to the diagram below. You start out the Bible, where the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created. Creation, the fall, and the flood. Then I put a few little dots there because the time period prior to those dots, it's hard to nail down. You don't know exactly, for instance, when the flood took place, when the fall took place. But when you get to the time of Abraham, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you get there, then you get into where you can correlate it pretty well with, with other history and know that we're dealing around 2000 B.C. So the patriarchs, the period of the patriarchs, what are you talking about here? That, well, that's what we're talking about here when, it talks, when we were talking about, uh, when we read there in uh, verse 1 of Hebrews where he said, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, the fathers, the patriarchs, that's what we're talking about, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God calls out this man, Abraham, to establish a nation. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has uh, 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and those tribes are eventually taken down into... uh, go down into Egypt and are in slavery there. This is in the time of Moses. God, God brings them out in a mighty way under the leadership of Moses. They have judges for a, a period of time. Really, God is the one instructing them, guiding them, directing them. God's their king. It's a theocracy. But they begin to kind of, once they're in the land of Canaan, to kind of say, we'd like a king like the other nations. God says, well, it's going to cause you some problems. But they kept persisting, and God says, all right, you're going to have a king. And so in that time, that's when it's called the United Kingdom. This is the time of Saul and David and Solomon. Are you with me? Everybody with me there at the United Kingdom? This is the golden age. Of, of the Jewish people. This is when the Psalms and the Proverbs were written. Uh, Ecclesiastes and, and uh, Song of Solomon. So th- that's the time, the, the time when uh, the Jewish people think back of one of their great, great times of uh, prominence in the world. But then uh, after Solomon, you have the the dividing of, of the kingdom to a northern kingdom and 
the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah. So you see that split there. The northern kingdom, almost all of their kings were, were bad kings. And so God brings judgment upon them. And the judgment he brings is the nation of Assyria, a ruthless, terrible nation, comes down, takes over the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasts longer because they have some godly people that are really seeking God, godly people, godly kings, prophets. So Judah lasts a little bit longer. Uh, Assyria tries to take over Judah, but it's not able. But in the meantime... Babylon comes to power and, and defeats Assyria. And then by this time, the people of God, the, the Jewish people, have turned away from God. And God allows Babylon then, the Babylonian Empire, to come and take over the southern kingdom. So you have Assyria taken over by the northern kingdom. And the southern kingdom lasting longer, Judah lasting longer, but eventually taken over by Babylon. Then you have a 70-year period called the Babylonian captivity. That's, that's a time when the, when the Jewish people are taken into captivity in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, so you have that, that period. In the meantime, the Babylonians lose power and the Persians take power. So the Persians defeat the Babylonians and they take over the the land of Israel. But the the Persians had a different policy. They'd allowed they allowed the, the Jewish people to go back to their land, at least a remnant of them to go back. So the Jewish people return under the Persians, and that's the end of the Old Testament. That's where the Old Testament ends. They rebuild the temple. When the, when uh, when the southern kingdom was taken over by the Babylonians they destroyed the temple, that temple that Solomon built. That was destroyed when the Babylonians took over. So during that 70 years, those people in the Babylonian captivity were wanting to go back to their land. Well, when Persia defeated the Babylonians, the Persians said, we'll let you go back. That was under Cyrus, King Cyrus. Cyrus said, you can go back and rebuild your temple. Well, that's what they did, and... That's where the Old Testament ends, after the rebuilding of the temple. Then what you have, that's, that's the end of the Old Testament. Before the New Testament starts, you have 400 years where there's no prophets, no written scriptures given uh, to the Jewish people. In the meantime, you have some other nations coming to prominence. And at the end of the Old Testament, it was the Persians um, over the, the Jewish people. Even though they allowed them to go back, they were still in, in power then, the, the Persians were. But the Persians were defeated by the Greeks. And the Greeks were defeated by the Romans. And when you start the New Testament, you have the Romans in charge of the Jewish people. So you end up with the Persians in the Old Testament, 400 years of no... No prophets, no written scriptures. And when Christ comes and we start having the New Testament written, it's the time of the Romans in charge of the area. Then you have the New Testament basically begin, begin to be written around 50 A.D., the, the epistles, the gospels, telling us about 
Christ and the church, book of Acts. And then on the little diagram there, you see some dots because that church is going to go on until Christ comes again. I don't know when that's going to be. But when he comes again, there's going to be judgment and new heavens and a new earth. What you have there, what I've tried to do, is present the history of the Bible uh, very briefly in, uh, in this timeline. You see down at the bottom how that this history of the, of the Jewish people has to do with the Old Covenant. The history in the New Testament of the church, the coming of Christ and the establishment of the church, is the New Covenant. I put little arrows on there because it's not like there's an absolute separation there. The old, the, the New Covenant was told about in the Old Covenant, and the Old Covenant is explained to us in the New Covenant. But nevertheless, there is a radical difference. And let me just mention some of the differences here. This is something I've presented before, but I thought it fit in here real well. And so I wanted to present it. In the Old Covenant, it was for one nation. The New Covenant is for all nations. The Old Covenant had frequent sin offerings. The New Covenant has one offering for sin for all times. The Old Covenant had a fleshly circumcision. The New Covenant has a circumcision of the heart. The Old Covenant had many temporary priests. The New Covenant has one eternal priest. We're talking about Christ. The Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, sin is remembered often. In the New Covenant, sin is remembered no more. I'm telling you, there is, even though there, there's a flow from one to the other, there's a di big difference in the Old and New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, there was an earthly tabernacle. In the New Covenant, there's a heavenly tabernacle. In the Old Covenant, it was written in stone and ink. The New Covenant is written by the Holy Spirit on, on the heart. The Old Covenant was a minister of death. Where Paul said, calls it a minister of death. The New Covenant is a minister of life. The Old Covenant brought condemnation. The New Covenant brought justification. The Old Covenant said, do and you will live. The New Covenant says, live and then you'll do. The Old Covenant brings bondage. The New Covenant brings liberty. The Old Covenant said, pay what you owe. The New Covenant says your debt has been paid. The Old Covenant said, make yourself a new heart. The New Covenant gives you a new heart. The Old Covenant left people imperfect. The New Covenant makes people perfect. The Old Covenant said salvation must be earned. The New Covenant says salvation is a gift. The Old Covenant worked wrath. The New Covenant saves from wrath. The Old Covenant said, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the law. The New Covenant says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. The Old Covenant made blessing a result of obedience. The New Covenant makes obedience the result of God's blessing. The Old Covenant said, Do. 
The new covenant says done. <laughs> the old covenant was a shadow. The new covenant is the reality. What was there in types and shadows in the old, co old covenant, what was there really in those types and shadows, it was, it was the blood of Christ. That was what was being presented in those types and shadows. The new covenant, what was there in the old covenant in types and shadows was the new covenant in Christ's blood, in, in Jesus' blood. And that new covenant there in types and shadows was there from the very beginning. From the time of the fall, God began to show the people about the new covenant in the old covenant. You can trace what's called the scarlet cord of redemption throughout the Old Testament. Are you, are you about fried? <laughs> Let's do it. We'll do it. I'll do it as quick as possible. The scarlet cord of redemption is talked about by many biblical writers because they take the picture there from the time of Rahab. Rahab the harlot. If you remember the account, well, let's turn to it real quick. Joshua, chapter 2. All right, here we are in the situation. The people of God have come out of uh, Egypt, the Exodus. They're coming into the promised land. They send spies in to spy out the land to see what it's like. Well, those spies actually came to a very, a woman of ill repute, we'll say that, Rahab. But she took them in and hid them. They said, we're going to come back, we're going to take over this land, Every, everybody's going to be destroyed, but if you'll put this scarlet cord out your window, when we come through and destroy everybody else, we won't destroy you, we won't take your life. You get your family in under, under that scarlet cord and you'll be safe. So, uh, Joshua chapter 2, verse 17. And the man said to her, We shall be free from this oath to which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. So they said, we're, if we see that cord, but it was a scarlet cord. Now this is the kind of thing you've got to look for in the Old Testament. You see, when we're talking about types and shadows, why in the world would this be a scarlet cord? What color is scarlet? It's red, right? Scarlet's red. Now, it might have been partly the fact that uh, her profession uh, is often associated with red, like the red light district. It probably was like, similar to that way back then. It was an acknowledgment of her sin, but it was also an acknowledgment of the way of salvation, how she could possibly be saved from death through this scarlet cord that she hung out. Well, people, people take that as a... Of course, a reference to Christ.
but they also talk about you can follow us that scarlet thread that scarlet cord through through the whole old testament and into the new testament so let's do it really quickly here and uh then we'll we'll be done but i think this is uh, such a wonderful thing we're talking about how to understand the bible remember we said it was jewish it's progressive but it's christ-centered and christ has been there from the beginning he's the the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But clear right at the beginning, once mankind turns away uh, from God and sins, what do you find out right away? Well, they try to cover themselves with fig leaves, with leaves. Not going to work. What does God do? He kills an animal and clothes them in skin. I wouldn't be surprised at all if it was a lamb. We don't know that. We're not told that. But we do know there had to be a death for them to be be covered uh, with those animal skins. So right away, God's starting. See, it's it's not clear. You wouldn't understand it if you just read it right there. But it's the beginning of God's teaching. He's he's showing. And what he was showing is there had to be death. The wages of sin is death. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness, we're told in the book of Hebrews. Death is a result of of sin. God decreed that where the sin is, death would follow. The soul that sins, it will die. And this this shedding of blood, this this uh, blood speaks of the loss of life, of violent death. God was showing there had to be sin's going to bring death. Now, he's he killed an animal so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. And I think he was teaching about the fact that there's no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood, and specifically Christ's blood. Cain and Abel knew that. Abel knew what kind of sacrifice he should give. He brought the first things of the flock. He brought a lamb. Cain didn't do that. He brought some produce from the from the ground. But God didn't accept that sacrifice. Abel knew that what pleased God was this blood sacrifice. All this again pointing, pointing forward, you see. God was teaching. You go on then to, to Noah. What's he do? The first thing out of the ark, he offers a, a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, one of those clean animals that he took along. Took some extra runs along, more than the unclean, because we were going to sacrifice those clean animals. Then you come up to the time of Abraham. God says, take your son up and sacrifice him on the mountain. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 22. We're, t- we're tracing the scarlet cord. Genesis 22. And we'll just jump into the middle of the account here. Here's here's Abraham with a knife raised about to sacrifice his son. What's God do? Verse 13. Then, well, let's start with verse 12. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do not do nothing to him for our Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes 
and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of this place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said this day, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. What will be provided? A Savior, a Lamb. Pointing forward to the Lamb that would die on a hill in Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem. You go forward a little bit in the scriptures, you come to the time of the Exodus. God sends all these plagues and, and judgments upon Pharaoh to get him to let his people go. He, he, Pharaoh keeps changing his mind, finally says, all right, the death angel's going through this land and kill all the firstborn of man and beast, except there's a way that, to prevent that, the scarlet cord. You put blood upon the doorposts, and I'll pass over that house. I'll pass over where I see the blood. I'll pass over you. You go forward a little bit more, and the giving of the law, uh, Exodus 24. Uh, let's look at this one, Exodus 24, verse 5. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel, this is Moses, and they offered burnt offering and sacrifices, young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So here's the law, the covenant uh, that God had given with uh, the Jewish people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So here's blood sprinkled on the people, on the altar and then on the people. Then you go a little bit further. You go into the book of Leviticus, and you see all these sacrifices that God requires of the people, blood sacrifices. Let's just look at one example, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 27. Leviticus 4, 27. Now, if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering in the place of the burnt offering. And the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering and all the rest of the blood he shall pour out of the basin of the altar. Well, verse 31. Then he shall remove all of its fat just as it as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of the peace offering, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. So you have this uh, offering again of a sacrifice for sin through the blood of this animal. 
And then you have, that's for an individual, then you have a, the great day of atonement, Yom Kippur, told us, told about in, uh, we won't look this one up, Hebrews, or uh, Leviticus 16 uh, and 17. So you have the, the day of atonement, again, blood placed upon the priest and the altar and the people. God is emphasizing that uh, the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. There had to be that death. And it's all pointing towards the death of Christ. You see this getting more clear in terms of pointing to the Messiah in some of the Psalms. For instance, let's turn forward now to uh, Psalm 22. This is a tremendous messianic, uh, by that means a psalm about the Messiah, <clears throat> written by David. But it's, it's the one that Christ quotes from when he's on the cross, when he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the reason he quotes from this psalm is because it's all about what was happening there at the crucifixion. Let's just uh, look at a, a few sections here of this, just to get a feel for what the Jewish people were, were, were being taught. Verse 7, All who see me sneer at me, they separate their lips. They wag their heads, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let the Lord de- let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. If you remember the sneers and the taunts of the people uh, around the, the cross there when Christ was crucified, that was the type of thing they were saying. But if you skip on down to verse 14, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. This is a description of Christ there on the cross. Thou didst lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Again, we're talking about this trail, this scarlet thread that goes through the Old Testament. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. See here, remember the time of David, 1000 BC, 1000 years before Christ. And you have a description of what took place at the cross. Well, let's fast forward a little bit more. This is a, a, a very brief presentation of this scarlet cord, but it gives a little feel. Uh, Isaiah, chapter 53. Again, a description of what of the work of the Messiah, the work of this promised one that, that the Jewish nation was founded to bring into the world. Isaiah 53. I could read the whole thing, of course, but uh, we'll just pick out the parts that especially speak of this scarlet cord. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we esteemed, we ourselves esteemed, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So he was smitten. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. 
if you skip over then to uh, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like sheep that is silent before its shears. He did not open his mouth. So here he's, he's the lamb. Remember John the Baptist. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Skip down to verse 8. He, he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people for whom the stroke was due. He was taking the stroke for their sins, for our sins. And then if you go down to verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he would see his offspring and he would prolong his days. Uh, I'm just skipping around. I'm not doing justice to the section by trying to skip around so much. My servant will justify the many as he bears their iniquities. He poured out himself unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. So again, we're just trying to follow this, this scarlet cord as it becomes clear, you see, things are getting clearer now. Things are getting clearer by the time you get to this prophet Isaiah telling about uh, Christ. When you get to the New Testament, then the scarlet cord becomes very clear. Uh, Jesus took a cup, and after he gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant, which is to be shed on behalf of the many for the forgiveness of sins. Like I said, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Paul says, talks about the church of God which was purchased by his own blood. Uh, he says in Corinthians, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Talks about having peace through the blood of the cross. You have all the scriptures in the, in the book of Hebrews about the work of Christ. You have John saying, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You have Peter saying, That you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as from a lamb, without blemish and without spot. And then you come to the book of Revelation, and you have John saying things like, For thou wast slain, speaking of Christ, and hast redeemed us, to God by thy blood, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And he says, talks about having washed us from our sins in his blood. Revelation 7:14. These are they that came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So you start back in the book of Genesis with some animal skins for Adam and Eve. That clothe them. You get to the the book of Revelation. All I mean, you've gone the whole through the whole Bible, and what do you have? You have people clothed in robes made white in the blood of the Lamb. So you have that scarlet cord cord made clear now. What's 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 it all about? It's about Christ cleansing us from our sins. Let me just close then by saying again, it helps in our understanding of the Bible, 
if we recognize that this is a Jewish book, that it's a progressive book, and that it's all about Christ. Those three things.